1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit findinggeniusfoundation.org and click on current initiatives. And now to our guest.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We've started on our massive literature review. Uh, we're looking at peer reviewed papers, lectures, interviews, books, everything we can find on anxiety and depression. Our goal is to find hopefully 20% of all the possible treatments that are out there for it if you compare that to an average practitioner which i believe may know two or three percent of all the possible treatments i think if we can make this project work which we will uh, it'll be a home run on top of a home run for sufferers of depression anxiety and people that love them so to find out more go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and today i have a, a returning guest he, he might be my most uh interviewed guest dr bill mcgraw <laughs> he seems to, he just has a wealth of knowledge on a lot of different areas uh, today I want to talk to him about corals and coral bleaching. Uh, Bill's originally from Pennsylvania. He got a, he earned two degrees, PhD in aquaculture. I forget what his other PhD was, but uh, these are from Auburn University in Alabama. And he's worked in various countries. He's been in Panama now for 10 years and he he works to help people with chronic disease. He also does, uh, some, you know, natural farming of fish in a way that's not full of pollutants and chemicals and actually produces good product for people. So Bill, thanks for coming back.
3: Thanks for, very much for having me back, Richard.
2: Yeah. Well, let's talk about what's been your interaction with coral reefs. How do you know anything about them? You know, let's mm-hmm. let's talk about this part of your uh, work.
3: Yeah. Uh, for me, um, uh, the first dive I did was off the coast of Mozambique. And uh, really, it was the first chance I really had to take a, seriously, a serious look at coral reefs and the interaction of fish and invertebrates and, and all the colors and the diversity and the growth rates of of all these different vertebrates and vertebrate uh, animals that exist on a coral reef. And it's just astonishing all of the activity and the colors that are there. And I just became really enamored with the whole thing and began studying it intensively after my PhD in aquaculture and then began growing corals and reading a lot, all the books on coral reefs and all the research papers that I could possibly get my hands on. And when I came to Panama, I visited every major coral coral reef system in Panama on the Atlantic and Pacific side. And I began to publish articles on big websites like the which is the biggest site in the world for aquaculture back, you know, five years ago, they used to publish a lot of uh, my articles on coral reefs and sponges and all different kinds of things in the sea here. I published an article, just that that was the fastest growing aquatic animal in the world at that time, documenting the growth rate. Cause I, I took one from the reef. I documented the growth rate and then put it back. And, uh, it was quite an experience. It wound up having the highest growth rate of any animal that I had ever measured or could ever find in any literature. So uh, it's been pretty interesting work. I've grown corals and, and all different kinds of reef fish. And then for a certain period of time, and then I brought them back to the reef and let them go again. And there's one particular coral reef I visited called the Seca Island. Which has got to be the nicest coral reef system in the Pacific. Eastern Pacific of Panama, and Panama is the biggest isthmus in the world, and has the most coastline of any per area of any country. And uh, of course, the Atlantic side has much greater diversity uh, than the Pacific side. But uh, the Pacific side is quick and easy to get to. I can be there in about three hours by car, and then by boat. And uh, I began studying it. And you know, the funny thing that happened is one day, I think it was March in 2015, I show up on the reef, which I knew this reef inside out, all the way around the island of Seca Islands. And uh, it was all snow white. The entire place was snow white. It looked like it had just been snowed on. It looked like a, a picture from the north of uh, Pennsylvania. And Oh, meaning uh,
1: meaning the whole reef was dead?
3: No, it just means that it had bleached. And mm. so I got freaked out. I mean, I really got freaked out and I thought, what, you know, what has caused this? And of course, then I remembered this was going to be an El Nino. So, you know, I had taken thousands and thousands of pictures. And so I began to uh, accumulate data on temperature changes and I contacted the the NOAA, and I contacted other organizations that were collecting temperature data on in the ocean over time, and I documented the temperature change that caused the coral bleaching at Seca Islands. And I published this research in the Journal of Reef Encounters. And what I determined it was that two degree temperature change over many months that caused these corals to actually bleach. Now, the co- coral bleaching is really a crazy process for corals, wherein that when when the water becomes too hot for the corals, they two degrees over several weeks uh, they oftentimes will expel the algae that they have in their tissues and of course Mm. it's a symbiotic relationship where the algae gives the coral food basically and the coral provides a home for the algae and they basically work together as a unit and so the coral basically Mm. builds builds an endoskeleton made out of calcium carbonate and so that's 90% of the weight of the coral is really just rock and that outer uh, thin layer of living tissue is where the algae lives and they grow and work together pretty well uh, over time. And the you know the algaes uh, do their thing and take in energy from the sun and make and make biomass and make food for the coral and the coral provides a home for the algae and then produces a little bit of extra nitrogen uh, that the uh, algae loves to feed on, and that's what of course makes plants grow so they live and work together very well until it gets too hot and when it gets too hot by two degrees, these corals that don't get exposed to temperature changes over time hardly ever uh, what happens is the coral will actually expel the algae because it's let's just say its metabolism goes berserk and the Mm -hmm. coral finds it uncomfortable and and ejects the algae and then looks for another species of algae. Now, when you see that coral is snow white and it's really dramatic, you can go on my website at uh, newaquatechpanama.com and you can see all my articles that I've published and all the pictures. I've got some awesome pictures of Seca Islands and as well as corals all over Panama. Well, when you see that white bleaching, the coral basically has days to maybe a week to accept another algal species into its flesh. So it can begin living again. Now, this is funny because the Porites coral, which is a large mound coral, it's kind of, I call it the bubble coral, which can be easily the size of a car. And I think Seca Islands has some of the biggest Parieti corals in the world. I mean, they're easily larger than a car, a single coral coral reef, Porites. And what will happen is when it accepts new algae, it went from just basically two color forms. It's purple Or can be a yellow. Well, it went from purple or yellow to green and light blue and light purple and orange and all these different colors because it basically accepted new algal species. So it didn't wind up killing this coral, it made it more beautiful. And so I, when I wrote about that, I kept publishing articles because it was just so fascinating for me that these things, yeah. when they got shocked by the temperature change, they didn't die. They got more beautiful. And now that didn't happen with all the corals. Uh, Porites is quite common all over the world. And especially at Seca Islands, there's another branching coral that a lot, some of it died. And you know, a coral is dead when algae grows on it because it, it'll bleach white and then algae starts to grow on it. And that's so funny, that's the...
2: The algae grows in it and is a symbiote and it right. essentially throws it up uh-huh. and then there's nothing and then the algae grows on it.
3: Well, you can it. tell because it's a hair algae. It's like Something, a thing, It's, just,
2: it's uh-huh. just funny that there's algae in it and then the, the whole cycle is that it has none and then the algae grows on it.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
3: Well, I tell you, you know, space on a reef is is at a pre prime, uh prime uh advantage because uh when you're in that area of light and you're that in that area of nitrogen phosphorus stuff wants to grow bacteria and algae's want to grow and it's everybody's fighting for survival there and fighting for area and when it when there's overfishing and some of the herbivorous fish are taken too many of them a lot of the algae gets out of control on a reef and it can uh smother some of the coral reefs sometimes during forest uh when uh, sorry when trees are harvested harvested in forestry uh sometimes a lot of sediment gets dumped into on a coral reef and it can smother it and kill it uh other things are agrochemical uh, agrochemicals that make their way through down into the bay area and then eventually out to coral reefs and they can uh cause all kinds of problems and kill corals there
2: for people that raise different fish are there certain fish that you can only raise outside you know next to a reef like Do you ever, does anyone do fish farms where they have coral as part of the farm and it's a necessary piece in order to raise the fish?
3: No, I don't think so at all because the corals themselves are very sensitive to nitrogen concentrations, nitrite and ammonia concentrations that say a, a fish in the ocean could easily survive would kill a coral. So also what you would happen is extra nitrogen and phosphorus would cause an algal bloom and the algal bloom would just uh, prevent light from getting down to the corals and they would suffer and die. So coral reefs are part of a pristine ecosystem, whereas aquaculture are generally associated with more of a eutrophic environment, whereas... You know, you're going to have excess nitrogen and phosphorus in the water, and you're going to have more algae. Now, just the right amount of nitrogen and phosphorus in the water, it can be very productive. It can be eutrophic, and there could be lots of filter feeders and lots of fish feeding on other fish. And uh, you know, it's just like fertilizing an aquaculture pond. If you don't fertilize a a lake or a pond, it could be clear and have very few fish. But if you fertilize, you put some nitrogen and phosphorus in there. Boy, the thing can just explode. And the next time you go fishing in there, there's tons of fish in there. And so you learn that uh, that lesson. But but again coral
2: you know. is not a, ne- a necessary part of the life of fish or, oh you know, no are these are these no. not fish that we would normally eat
3: well twenty five percent of all marine life depends on a coral reef for its survival. The coral mm. reef is so integrated into everything that happens in the ocean that the ocean depends upon it in terms of diversity. It's oftentimes a nursery for small fish. When you're when you're swimming at a coral reef, oftentimes you'll see huge schools of small fish hiding in and amongst the corals. It's incredibly productive, incredibly diverse, an incredibly stable environment until the temperature changes. Now, the funny thing mm. is I published research is that in the shallow waters, you'll often find corals even when it's hot, the shallow waters get hot at low tide and you'll find corals surviving these are corals that have adapted to the temperature changes and will often live long enough to produce offspring that will uh, re-inhabit other areas that were taken out So a deep water coral has never been exposed to the low, the higher temperatures and what happens sometimes it will just die it will be too much of a shock it won't be able to accept a new uh, algal symbiont and it will just die and you I've seen huge areas of coral rubble but I'll tell you beyond the uh, El Niño's which create these things, which are actually, they think, caused by uh, sunspots and solar activities because they bring on a, an El Nino. And the El Nino is just an increase in temperature. Uh, when the water moves basically from the west to the eastern Pacific, it brings all that warm water into areas that haven't experienced this warm water. And the increase in temperature changes to one or two degrees is enough to shock a lot of the deep water corals that have not experienced that increase in temperature change. So uh, when they say, you know, if you want to get a, a grant in research to study this stuff, you have to to talk about cl- climate global warming and climate change if you talk about that they'll you'll find a grant but if you talk about how ph changes of point zero three ph units are caused by a slight increase in carbon dioxide are unaffecting the majority of the corals i mean point zero three you can't even pick up on a meter most well, of the time well, no,
2: like usually natural systems have resiliencies built into them at least somewhat but it sounds Correct. like cool or ultra sensitive like is what have correct? you identified are some of the thermal and pH and other
0: regulatory mechanisms in a coral? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
3: Okay, first off, um, you have to understand that. Of course, the, the ocean is incredibly well buffered, 116 milligrams per liter of alkalinity as calcium carbonate. Now that sounds like a lot of, a lot of information, but if you, if you're running a, an aquarium or if you're doing a, a coral reef system, you know all about what I'm talking about. And it means, uh, alkalinity means basically resistance to change in pH. So when you have a little bit of extra carbon dioxide and stay with me here, because it's going to get science spent, right? <laughs> when you have a certain amount of carbon dioxide, it disassociates into carbonic acid and creates a decrease and pH. Now it's a very minor amount. When you have an increase of carbon dioxide of 20%, like what's happening in the atmosphere, it's a very minor amount of increase in carbon dioxide in the water, because after all, the oxygen in the water is 10,000 times what it is. Uh, it's it's 10,000 times more in the atmosphere than it is in the water, because water just doesn't hold that much uh, gases. And so the carbon dioxide is a minor fraction, certain amount disassociates into carbonic acid, and of course, acids decrease pH. And it's a small, tiny, the surface water of the ocean will decrease. pH units. And it's a joke. It's not causing any death of corals from pH change. That's an important thing people need to realize. And the propaganda... Purported by and reported by, you know, the major media is a load of junk, just like it is for everything else. In regards to, you know, what that I won't mention, otherwise it might take this video down. But it really is a load of junk. Uh, the pH hasn't changed enough, and there's there's corals in shallow water that have adapted to minor changes in pHs and and major changes in temperature that are doing just fine because I've visited them a hundred times, and every time mm. I go, they look amazing. They're beautiful colors. There's brain corals in shallow waters of of Bocas del Toro. There's there's all kinds of stony corals in shallow waters of Seca Islands.
2: What are the factors that, you know, keep a coral healthy versus the ones that are more delicate? Why is that?
3: Okay, so what keeps the coral healthy is pristine, clear waters because the algaes need sunlight and you can't have a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus. Now, remember, really the toxic component in any aquaculture system or any reef system is going to be a nitrogen, a species of nitrogen like nitrite primarily and to a lesser amount nitrate. So you could have for a shrimp system, you could have a three milligram per liter nitrate trite and that would be okay. The, the shrimp would be fine, but for a coral reef, it would be devastating. So you really can not have that extra nitrogen and extra nitrogen brings on really a, a, an overgrowth of algaes. And if you don't have these herbivorous fish on that reef to eat up all the rest of the algae, the hair algaes, which are a nuisance most of the time, ask any coral reef person, they'll tell you, then that, that hair algae can block out the, the sunlight and kill the coral reef. Also extra sediments in the water from, from anything like uh, forestry or any kind of development, Development. You know, there used to be coral reefs in areas around Boca Brava Island off the coast of Boca Chica. Uh, the old timers used to tell me at the gym, oh yeah, there used to be corals there back in the 70s. Well, now you won't find a coral within 10 miles of Boca Brava. And that's sure. from the agrochemicals jumping down from in the waters. And also you won't find a single species of shrimp or crayfish or fish in the streams of Cherokee province anymore. And that's from overfishing and the agrochemicals such as the glyphosates in the water. And this is what I get from the naturalists that recognize sample the streams they're good friends of mine and they said look there's nothing there but a few catfish they're all gone they're all dead Uh, sometimes the indigenous people will throw chemicals in the water and they kill everything that's in the water and then they collect it and eat it well all those chemicals make their way into the estuary of places like Boca Chica and they wind up killing stuff there and then all the extra nitrogen phosphorus from all the synthetic fertilizers winds up bringing on this massive algal bloom killing off all the corals and you can't find a coral reef unless you go what about 45 minutes out to sea and then you'll see pristine conditions again anytime you're around people domestication you're going to find more heavy metals more nitrogen more phosphorus more domestication more forestry and a whole lot less diversity of species sensitive species like coral reefs you just won't find them there where you're used to
2: people are wearing this do they just feel helpless do they care yeah they, again are there strategies to help concerned farmers or concerned Mm -hmm. people that live around these estuaries or does no one Um, care or does no one understand like what's your observation
3: no no i don't think anybody really understands or cares i gave a coral reef presentation here in boquete very few people show up but if i was to give a presentation on investment opportunities for wealthy individuals you'll have a standing room only and there'll be a fist fight out the parking lot as to who's going to get more room there Uh, it's just uh, the bottom line is there's just not concern about coral reefs they don't understand the importance of a coral reef in terms of uh, longevity of fisheries and sustainability of fisheries. Uh, Same thing with whales. Whales have died uh, by by increasing of a factor of 10, beaching themselves over the past 10 years. And nobody wants to talk about that. There's too much interest in potential wars, uh, the bologna vaccines that are going on and the bologna viruses and all the bologna media that's coming out about everything. Oh, so-and-so says this. So you get on your Facebook and you get on your Instagram and you get on your, your, your WhatsApp and you talk to people people about all the crazy stuff going on in the meantime a lot of everything around us is going straight to hell and there's no grants for research for this unless you're working on a global warming or climate changing from co2 from from burning gasoline and suvs you're not going to find people doing it so most of the coral reef is conducted by volunteers going out into the field to making assessments of the condition of the coral reefs or me i didn't get paid to do the coral reef research i did it on my own time because i wanted to really document that that bleaching i thought it was incredible. Incredibly important. Nobody in Panama is doing any research on any coral reef at any point in time, anywhere. The Smithsonian used to do some 20, 30 years ago. There's a fellow by the name of Dr. Peter Glenn, who I think retired out of Miami University. He's famous in the area of coral reef research. And he used to work at the Smithsonian in Panama. And when he was there, he published some awesome research, including stuff on Seca Islands. But nobody's doing anything out there. There's no grant money. There's no anything. Whatever happens, happens. And there's no fisheries management here in Panama. You take whatever you want. You do whatever you want you throw it in the water whatever you want it's sort of like China you know whatever the only difference is we only have 3.8 million people in our in our country here and there's just not enough people or industry to destroy the planet or destroy the the country completely so we won't be like China for a while but we don't really have EPAs and we don't have NOAA we don't have fisheries so people just go out and dump and do whatever they want to do and that's why
2: the fish start disappearing and there's a a lack of food I mean there's got to be some like consciousness that hey there's a problem here or do people just say, Oh, we'll find something else and just move on.
3: That's it. Okay. I'll give you three examples. One is the, the Pacific spiny lobster. Okay. And the Pacific ocean is collapsed. Okay. It's just completely collapsed. That's according to the scientist 15 years ago who did uh, published a paper in the Smithsonian. It was one of the rare times that a paper was published on the fisheries of Panama. I read it. I Mm. documented it. I put it on my website. That's one example. Those are his words, not mine. Uh, The second thing is you have to understand There's a place back in the day. We're going back into the 1600s. They're off the coast of Panama. There's an area known as the Pearl Islands. They called it the Pearl Islands because it was really the capital of oysters in Latin America. Now you could not find an oyster. I did 19. Dives on the Pearl Islands five years ago, and I could not find a single oyster anywhere. That's because they've been over harvested and they're just about extinct there. That is the second example, and of course, the third example is the scallop. The scallops used to be in great abundance here in the, in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Panama, and now you won't find one. It's it's a collapsed uh, fishery, and that's just from the overtaking of of these animals, and they've just the populations have collapsed and haven't come back for the past couple hundred years. Example is they're trying to shut they shut down the shrimp fisheries here. Over a period of months. But when they do these sains and they do these sane harvests, they just destroy the bottom environment. And of course, there's nobody out there. There's no Greenpeace. There's nobody out there saying, hey, look, you know, you can't. You can't do that. There's no checks and balances here. There's no uh, internal services going on. Hey, you can't do that. You know, people do what they want. And there's no, you know, who runs the country is the people with money. And, and that's just it. There's no, there's no organization that's going to stop all that. And so that, 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 what happens is what happens. And I don't think there will be any concern until things really get rock bottom to you can't find anything. And then the, there may be some funding for doing something, but it'll be too late. It'll just be too late.
2: I mean, what do the major fishing outfits do you you know have you seen like they've got to be aware of it but right so anything or no
3: well they do go out there is because there's only 3.8 million people here it's one of the most underpopulated countries in this hemisphere is Panama. If you go north or you go south, you're going to find countries that have ten times the population number. And it's just Panama is not very populated, and so it's still fairly pristine. They you can they still go out and catch. You know, there's you know they have long lines, they have Seines, You can use a gill net, you can use anything you want, and there's still fish out there. There is still fish out there, ocean, and and uh, you know I think they grant I, there's no licensing. There's no fisheries, so you go out and they take everything. They take every tiny, small fish you can possibly imagine. And and what happens over time is that uh, they just take whatever they want, and 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 certain populations it. They'll move on to another fish species, and in time that may come back. So they're still catching tuna out there. I've got a good friend of mine, Captain Dave Murphy, who's been fishing here for 15 years, and he's got his spots. You can still go out there and catch fish as as uh you know renting, doing the charter thing. You can still go out there and catch fish, but he has his own spots, and he's been here for long time so there certainly is much lower numbers but there's still fishing going on here and the predominant reason for that is there's just not that many people and not that many boats here
2: have you tried to restore a coral reef area or an estuary and how hard is that to do and how long does it take
3: okay yeah that's an awesome question in off the coast of Mozambique I saw my first artificial reef was which is basically a bunch of cinder blocks and there were things growing on it and fish swimming around it and I thought to myself well this has got to be the coolest thing I've ever seen and so going back to Panama I tried to do the same thing uh, but the wave forces are so strong you just have to have a huge amount of weight not to have things knocked around and just knock things around when I tried to build an artificial reef but you can do that but you'd have to haul out a lot of weight we just don't have that size of boat it gets expensive when you you charter a boat, you're looking at a $1,000 between bringing the boat out and staying over and all your equipment and all your time and then everything so you, else. You can't like,
2: you can't go to an area and drop a bunch of cinder blocks and
3: you, you can know,
2: in, in six weeks, it'll help or like, what, what, yes. what can you do?
3: You can do that. I tried to do that, but it has to be even larger. It's going to have to be a group of blocks. And then, of course, if somebody finds it, they may disturb it. They may just pull it out of there if it's somebody's fishing grounds or whatever. You can do that. Uh, the good news is most of the corals have rebounded from the El Nino in the Pacific. They've rebounded nicely. They've you know, they turn different colors from accepting more algaes. So it was very promising to see this happen and to see these coral reefs regrow. And, uh, you know, it is a dynamic system. There's a lot of turbulence. There's a lot of wave force and it does tear things apart and throw things around quite a bit. And some corals now haven't come, but I'm sure there's other areas of the ocean that you would find that they would come back and they will repopulate certain areas. So I'm I'm pretty hopeful. I'm sure in a hundred years, the pH will go down enough to affect things maybe. But for now, I'm pretty still pretty hopeful, although I the major media Will tell you that fifty percent of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia has been is gone. I don't know how much of that's true. I haven't been there. I've never dove the reef there. But here, I can tell you that things have rebounded, and I'm very hopeful they've even gotten more beautiful. So I was so surprised and very happy to see that because it's you know it's my backyard here.
2: Well, how long have you observed it takes to restore a reef and restore a few percent of it or most of it? I mean, what?
3: Yeah. You know,
2: again, if if the world cared. And if people really wanted to do stuff to fix this, what would that look like?
3: Well, it certainly would look like taking corals from one area and then replanting them in another area. Now, certain corals can grow as much as a centimeter per month. That is some of the branching corals. You can see them on my website. They grow fast. Uh, they may die, but they'll grow fast. I mean, in a year, you could have a whole new reef there because they'll they'll get in there, they'll uh, reproduce, and they'll get they'll settle at an area and they'll grow again. I've seen it happen, and they'll change different colors in in response to minor temperature changes. Some of the my, massive Porites corals, which are big mound corals. They like a big boulder, like with bubbles on it. You'll see them on my website. Uh, they, they, very few of those were damaged. They've regrew. They, they exchanged algae and, and they just got more beautiful and they kept growing. Now those things only grow a centimeter a year. So they've really had to, I think, adapt to the, temperature changes because after all, coral bleaching has been going on since 1782 was the first documented coral bleaching event. So El Nino has wow. been going on there and corals have been adapting and the shallow water corals are regularly exposed to these temperature changes. And I've seen some beautiful brain corals in very shallow water exposed to high, to higher temperatures and lower pHs and so on. So, you know, there is great hope for the coral reefs that I've seen. And of course, sponges, anybody who's seen a, a beautiful purple or blue sponge, like what you'll see on my website. Uh, You'll have to look under articles published, but you'll see some beautiful sponges at Bocas uh, del Toro. And, And sponges are going crazy with the increase in temperatures because it means that basically there's more plankton, things are growing faster, and these things are growing better because they can survive the shock of the increase in water temperatures because they've adapted better over time and there's more plankton in the water to eat. And so there's actually a benefit for sponges on a on a reef, they grow faster, they grow, they become more beautiful, they become more vibrant as the temperature increases. So when people tell you, oh my God, we're all gonna die, the temperature's increasing because we're driving SUVs, you tell them, no, that's not quite true. I've heard I just heard a podcast and I've heard a scientist talk about the coral reefs and they're surviving. So it's not all gloom and doom and I'm very happy to report that because I, I think people as we discussed before in our other podcasts, there's enough gloom and doom out there for for a couple different planets, not just this one, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I I don't know, are there any innovative technologies that, uh, again, help with the regrowth of coral reefs? Is there any magic to this? Or it's literally like...
3: I've seen people do these things. I don't know what they call them, Christmas trees or whatever, but what they'll do is you could take a raft and suspend rope from it and then tie pieces of coral on that. I did a bit of work in the Boca Chica area. I tied corals to things like docks and things to see the growth, but there was too much algaes. You have to go way out to get away from all that excess algae. All the excess nitrogen and phosphorus creates a lot of algae in the water and shades out the water. And of course, algae's the free-flowing algae, the normal free-flowing algae, don't get along with corals because they shade the water, and the coral can't get uh, the, the algae. that live inside the coral, can't get sunlight and survive. So you won't find these, you know, areas around human activity, uh, human populations. You won't find coral reefs. But if you go out further, you will find them. And one of the things they that can do out in the open ocean is they can have a big raft, they can suspend lines, and then tie pieces of coral. A lot of times, when there's a lot of turbulence, you'll find broken pieces of live coral, uh, all strung all over the place. And I looked through that. And I take pieces of coral and I bring them back and I grow them and I, and I look at growth rates and then I take them back and release them and I look for animals there and we take them home, we grow them and then we put them back. And you find that if you take these pieces of coral and anybody can do this, you don't have to have a PhD and you put them on lines and I've done this before on rafts and buoys out, out in the Boca Chica Bay and you can look at these corals growing over time. Just weigh them or take pictures or measure them with the caliper. Anybody can use a caliper. It's pretty easy to use or just take a ruler and measure the growth over time. It could be centimeters per month it could be uh growth in weight in grams per per week whatever you'd like or per month anything you'd like to do like that and observe it there's no reason why you can't do that yourself and help preserve the corals and expand the coral reefs because after all 25% of all the marine species in the ocean depend on a coral reef for survival and growth
2: where are the reefs are they typically near land where it's not where it's shallow enough that sun gets to them or like where do they preferentially Mm -hmm. grow and not grow
3: well, you know what the best coral reefs you'll find are in islands and pristine locations in the Pacific Ocean. Much of those some of the areas that are not around human inhabitations, they still grow and they survive and they're they're pristine and beautiful. The closer you get to human habitation, the less corals you have. You know, this is basically septic tanks and agriculture and forestry. Destroy the habitat for coral reefs. So basically, you know, around islands out. And further out in the ocean is where you're going to find their coral reefs that exist close to the equator. The more corals you're going to have, uh, you know, Florida around the Keys, you'll see beautiful coral reefs. In the Bahamas, you see a coral reef, Panama, uh, but some of the, the biggest barrier reef outside of Australia is off the coast of Belize. I've been there. I photographed it and wrote articles and published them. Uh, it's a phenomenal thing. Look at the blue hole on the internet and you'll see corals all around that hole there. But it's basically shallow water where there's a lot of sunlight. So if anytime you have sunlight and nitrogen and phosphorus, you're going to have growth. And that's where the diversity and greatest, fastest growth rates and the most colorful fishes and the most uh, activity you're going to find is in the shallow water where all the energy from the sun is found. And the most amount of things are growing and surviving and interacting. And I could spend all day, I could spend 12 hours on a coral reef and I have, and just come up to eat and then I'm back down because, you know, with a camera, uh, you just have so much fun taking pictures and I love bringing people out there and, and to see that and my wife and i have gone out to every major coral reef system in in panama and just documented everything and we've just had an absolute blast i mean it's so much fun to look at these things and photograph them and then you know later on in the day you sit back you know after dinner and you look at all these pictures and it's so much fun
2: i mean have you been able to innovate on anything to uh you know to help coral reefs even artificial ones like what you know from all this observation what have you learned that should be done or could be done
3: well, I think as I mentioned, I think that any kind of space, any kind of substrate, being a rock or a piece of wood or anything and that's out in shallow water, exposed to shallow water with with sunlight, is going something is going to grow out of it. Now, most of the time, it's just going to be simple algae. But in a pristine environment where there's corals around, there, corals will inhabit any any surface area that that's undisturbed, like a rock, uh, a cinder block, uh, you know, anything. You'll find corals growing on anything that's out there. Uh, so any kind of substrate. So if you were to see sands, let's say, and you put out a, like a, a a stack of cinder blocks, over time, you will see fish inhabiting. You will see algaes and and you will see corals growing on it if there's corals in that area. And things will inhabit any kind of structure. So any kind of, you know, oftentimes you'll see, well, maybe the Navy sunk a boat uh, and it became a coral reef over time. Look up artificial reefs on the Internet. and You'll see wonderful species of corals and fish growing all around there. Because anytime you have a substrate, there's a 100 times more uh, amount of bacteria that will grow on that substrate compared to the open water. So anytime you have substrate, you'll have a lot more bacteria, you have more bacteria, you have more algae, you have more algae, you have more fish. You have more fish, you have larger fish and so on. It's a whole ecosystem, a whole thriving environment can can inhabit an area that has a substrate. But just open water, you can only do so much because there's only so much that can live in open water. But a substrate, like a rock, or uh, even a piece of wood i remember back in the day boy scouts we used to put out artificial reefs even in sh- even in fresh water and you'd be surprised all the stuff that would inhabit this reef uh you know you have all kinds of small fishes and different types of invertebrates growing on it and all kinds of algae and bacteria it's a base of a food chain you're establishing a bigger base food chain and then other things grow on that food chain and then so on and so on eventually get bigger fish and the fishermen are happy and the reef people are happy and, and it's just a better environment. So you'll see you'll see artificial reefs growing out all over the world. You'll see Australia. You'll see uh, it's big in Florida, people using uh, floating lines and connecting pieces of of corals and you'll see different people building artificial reefs and that promotes the the spiny lobster fishery and in Florida the spiny lobster fishery is one of the best managed fisheries in the world take a look at their uh, average harvest so from year to year it's it's one of the best managed fisheries in the world it's a big success story and part of that is the dedication of the people involved that uh, control the amount that's harvested and the fishermen that follow those regulations and it's incredibly well managed and you know so the coral reefs can be well managed as well by by protecting them and, and, and putting in artificial reefs and you'll have more lobsters and more fish and every it's a win-win situation for everybody i think
2: is there a way to harvest off of a reef but do it in a sustainable way or
3: yes you know, like how, i think you how can much go-
2: can these reefs produce can you cal- can it be calculated
3: well i think you can go there and you can collect all the bro- broken pieces of living coral because if, if, a, if a coral reef is turbulent, stuff breaks off, man. Uh, sometimes, regrettably, there will be grounding from boats. And, you know, if that thing is smashed up, you can collect fragments and regrow the whole thing. Uh, you know, if you get enough of the uh, living cells on a piece of uh, hard coral, uh, they'll grow if the conditions are right. But if you take a to your aquarium, you're going to have to be aware that 90% of the of the coral is rock, so you have to grow calcium and carbonate together in something called a calcium reactor, and that is kind of a difficult thing to do unless it's controlled by computers that regularly disperse calcium and carbonate into water to grow rock, and it's the same thing that happens with oysters when you grow them in a recirculating aquaculture system. It's very difficult. It's uh, time-consuming and expensive, uh, but um, I think that if you uh, can go out there and 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 do these things in a conservation manner i think that you can promote a better ecosystem and an overall better uh environment for everybody
2: can you or anyone calculate the um productive capacity of a a given amount of coral or an area Um, of the ocean
3: that's kind of hard to do because every different species is different in terms of how long it takes to reproduce, in terms of a a minimal population, a critical population size that it takes to reproduce. If you want to read a story, read a story about cod off the coast of the Great Banks and off the coast of Massachusetts, as they like to say up there. And uh, you're going to see that once that critical uh, population mass decreased to below a certain size, the cod fisheries collapsed and it's now just coming back and it's taken decades and decades for that to happen. So you'd have to be careful how much you harvest. have to go species by species, it may be possible to look at a coral reef and say, well, you know, their population estimates of herbivorous fish are about 50% higher than than what they normally are. So maybe we can have a sustainable harvest there of herbivorous fish. Okay. So the next time you go back and maybe you see that, well, we have a certain number of fish that feed on corals. Uh, you know, certain fishes, certainly these large parrot fishes, you'll see them when they poop, they'll poop sand onto the coral reef. And that's a way that sand is actually created is what these fishes feed on coral reefs and then they'll digest them. Well, sometimes you may have too many parrotfish and maybe you could harvest them, although they're too beautiful to... to I'm sure there's spare fishers go down there and shoot those parrotfish and eat them. You can eat them. And I'm sure people out in the indigenous islands, in the Pacific, spare everything and eat everything. But there's so many fishes that you can, that can be replaced. So normally you'd have to say, ah, you know, if I had to take a guess, I'd say 10 to 20% could be harvested from a coral reef in terms of the fishes, in terms of the different invertebrates. But there's some... Invertebrates that take a longer time to grow and population changes. So, you know, the diverse, the more diverse a coral reef habitat is, the the better resistant it is to change. And I think the more likely it can't be harvested, but you need a scientist to say, look, this thing reproduces a lot. There's a, there's an incredible number. It's very, it's very buoyant and robust. So get out there. Robust rather, that's the word, not buoyant, but robust is the word. And so it, it, it's very resistant to changes in, in population structure and population changes. And you could potentially go out there and say, look, we can harvest 20% of this population every every uh couple months or every month without uh, having any effect because it reproduces so well and there are other fish that only produce, reproduce maybe a hundred fish and they take care of them and uh, you'd have to say well you know you can't really take all these out of here because there's not much enough to replace them but some fish are more prolific so it could have to be a species by species thing it wouldn't be something i could say a blanket approach but if i had to and somebody said look you need to make a decision i'd have to say look harvest 10 percent from a coral reef in terms of fish and it should sustain itself if, it's, if there's good diversity. For one fish would take the place of another yeah. back in, the, in an ecological niche, I'd have to say.
2: Are there any examples of any islands or populations that are doing things that are rotating and maintaining, you know, their coral populations and their fish populations?
3: i tell you, one of the most robust and, and successful stories of, of aquaculture is, is farming seaweeds. I think seaweeds are by far the biggest aquaculture species in the world, and you can grow seaweeds next to a coral reef, and you can harvest seaweeds next to a coral reef because you're not putting in a feed. Remember, all your nitrogen, phosphorus in an aquaculture system comes from the amount of feed that you put into the system. And so if you're not putting in feed, well, you could even do oysters and, and kelp and different uh, types of algaes that grow these different for algal forms. The lacto is a famous one. There's another one called Gracilaria, uh, that they can tie onto rocks and ropes and nets. And they grow very well. They suck nitrogen phosphorus out of the water and keep the water pristine. And they can be grown right next to a coral reef, providing that they don't damage it by walking on it. And then you could also have uh, oysters out and beds and oysters attached to rocks and oysters and rafts. And that can be grown next to a coral reef, not too close, because, of course, the oysters will poop all over the reef and maybe create problems. But generally, out without a certain distance, uh, you can, you can keep uh, oysters there and grow them and the oysters will clean the water in terms of reducing algal populations, removing nitrogen phosphorus from the water and, and maintain Pristine aqua water conditions and and uh, make uh, the coral reef even healthier. So that's a fantastic idea. And and indeed they do that. And indeed it works, especially off the coasts of 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 countries in Asia, where you have all that extra nitrogen phosphorus. You know, two thirds of the world lives in Asia, and their coastlines are pretty eutrophic. Lots extra nitrogen phosphorus. So what do they do? Well, they're pretty smart for in terms of aquaculture. A lot smarter than uh, a lot of places in the United States. And they grow a lot of seaweeds and they grow oysters. You know, the biggest seaweeds producing. 80% 80% of all the seaweeds are produced in Asia and probably 80% of all the shellfish are produced in Asia. Why is that? Because they they go out there and they put the, you know, everything's subsidized and the labor's cheap but the land's cheap and all that and then the government promotes it. Not like in the United States where if I tried to go out there and put do something like that, there'd be an uproar because it's off the coast of a near hotel and they say they put up signs and they take me to jail. Well, in, in Asia, a lot of the countries promote it and they they promote the industry and they subsidize it and they they give all kinds of benefits and grants and they go out there and do the research, and they put oysters and seaweeds, and now they're they produce a hundred times more than what we do through aquaculture in the United States, and that's because they're way ahead of us in terms of their commercial production. And any aquaculture person knows it, you know. And when you read about it, you say, there, "Wow, um, they do a lot."
2: Are there uh, coral farmers that grow significant amounts of coral? And is there any market for that?
3: There is, and it mostly comes from the aquarium people. You know, the coral reef growers. Hmm are are scientists in and above themselves and they're masters of the calcium metabolism and the calcium uh, chemistry of a reef system. And if you want to learn about uh, calcium reactors, you go talk to a reef guy. A guy who's got a big coral reef and he knows all about it and he'll teach you. And those coral reef guys are amazing. And I read their articles and uh, those guys are heroes in terms of the of the ocean world because they're growing corals. They're growing a vast number, diversity of corals. They're, they're very prolific farmers and they're selling those corals to the aquarium trade. And they're the ones that are preserving the sensitive coral reefs, especially in the Pacific Ocean, because they're growing a lot of stuff. They're probably growing 100 different types of corals. A lot of them are common corals that are easy to grow. And You'll read about those and they sell them to, to aquarium stores. They maybe make a few dollars, but most of the time it's for love. And, and those are the heroes of the ocean. Those are the people that had, shall inherit the earth. By God, those, those are they're great people. I, I know them. Hmm. I read their work and they're doing outstanding work by growing corals in, in aquariums, large aquariums and tanks.
2: But you said it's mostly for hobbyists or I guess people that have fish right. tanks. But what about for, again, I, I don't know. I would think like, couldn't you consult? with a given country, an island country or some other country and say like, Hey, I'll, I can help restore some of your corals. And Uh I mean, is is there any Uh, interest? There's gotta be some people that are aware of this.
3: Yes, absolutely. But I think in a lot of countries are like Panama, there's no (laughs) fisheries. So where would I go? I'd have to do everything on my own. Where are the grants? There's no grants. There's no grants here for research. I've done aquaculture research here for 10 years, and there's no grants. My money comes from private investors that that pay me to do research, and I publish re- articles. You read about my investors in at the end, at the comments section or at the acknowledgments. You know, you'd have to approach these governments, and they'd have to understand the realization. there have to be education. I'm sure there's countries that are switched on. There's countries that do protect their coral reefs absolutely, but a lot of it's just slash and burn agriculture. It's it's put and take. They'll take whatever they can off the coral reefs, and they. Use cyanide to kill fish at coral reefs and they damage the coral reefs and they capture the fishes and then they send them back to the aquarium hobby and then they're sold and, and maybe it might be that these people need the money and that's the only income they can get on these uh remote islands. And I can't blame them. You know, you got kids to feed, you're gonna do what you gotta yeah. do, you feed your kids. I mean, I've seen that stuff right now. People are panning for gold because of the huge price of gold out in the streams and they're putting mercury all over the place there's more mercury in the atmosphere than ever in the history of the world and that's because there's a gold rush planet wide gold rush it's no longer in california and that's because people need to feed their kids Mm -hmm. If you're gonna make 20 dollars a day panning for gold you're gonna get it you're gonna make five dollars farming or 20 bucks a day panning for gold so i don't blame those people those artisanal gold miners that are out there destroying the amazon right now 20 percent of the amazon basin is being destroyed by by mercury from uh panning for gold and i don't blame those artisanal farmers because they're poor and they're trying to feed their babies your your kid is hollering for food you're going to do whatever you have to to feed that kid so it's the people that are paying a high price for gold the people that set the price for gold that are initiating the the destruction of the of the habitats out in the in the bays in the estuaries the pristine environments
2: so where's the best place for people to find out more about your various work and to see what you have to offer where can they go
3: yeah just my website is new aquatech panama dot com. So uh, N-E-W-A-Q-U-A-T-E-C-H-P-A-N-A-M-A dot com. And then you're going to go and look under articles and research and you'll see all the articles I've published. You'll see all the podcasts I do on heavy metal toxicity, coral reefs, aquaculture, permaculture, farming, ecology, and all that stuff. Also, you'll find information on the class I teach, which is on basics of aquaculture. I teach all about conservation and permaculture and aquaculture and, and how to breed and grow fish and, and how to market them and how to write business plans and all that stuff. And you're going to find a 60-minute free lecture on aquaponics. You remember aquaponics that we talked about way back in Mm -hmm. the day? Well, I've got one of my lectures on my website that you can look at for free. It's on YouTube as well. It's very popular. It's my most popular video that people like to watch. So there's lots to uh, look at, lots to learn. And if you want to learn more, uh, the class I teach is $20 a class. It goes on for, I think, 14 classes, seven weeks. And you're going to learn everything you want to know about aquaculture, shrimp farming, tilapia, ocean fish, seaweeds, nitrogen, phosphorus, stocking density, harvest amounts, you name it. I teach all that stuff on my, on my course. So uh, it's regularly, it's about three times a year. So there's another one coming up probably in another month.
2: Okay. Well, Bill, that's great. Thanks for coming back for the uh, 500th time and, I hope to to talk to you again soon. So thank you. Yeah, I
3: I think we will very soon. Thanks for having me on. It's always a blast and uh, take care. We'll talk to you soon.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.